an observation I made last week, which I can't believe I didn't think of this before. Huswell has a lot of signposted bike routes. You're on bike route 59. Well, the sign just tells you you're on 59. It doesn't tell you where you're going. There's no wayfaring. There's nothing else. But the thing that I decided just really annoyed me is I'm in the neighborhood, quiet streets, on a bike route, and I, have, I hit five stop signs in the neighborhood. And if the city just changed the orientation of the stop signs to the other streets, I've now saved time and energy and effort and safety because I've not stopped all those times. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name's John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, May 7th, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm delighted to share this conversation I recently had with David Nuttall in Huntsville, Alabama. David was introduced to me by a longtime fan and supporter of Active Towns, Larry Mason, who insisted that David had an interesting story to be told. And boy, was he right. In mid-2019, David set out to ride every street within the city limits of Huntsville, which, as you'll soon learn, was no small feat, given its hilly topography and rather large size at 220 square miles. To say he came to this challenge and went about it in a rather unconventional way is a massive understatement. But before we roll into his description of that adventure, please allow me a very brief moment to mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And here's a big, huge thank you going out to James R. for your generous donation. I really appreciate the support. Now, if you too are in a position to make a contribution, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that bright blue donate button in the top right corner of the page. No amount is too small as every little bit adds up. Now, if money's tight right now and making a contribution is not an option at this moment, no worries. There's still good news. If you find this podcast interesting, entertaining, or insightful, you can still help me out in a big way by telling your friends, colleagues, or even any community leaders you think might benefit from this content. Either way, thank you all so much for tuning in and whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow the culture of activity movement. One final reminder before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. Thanks. Okay, time to get this very intriguing conversation with David Nuttall rolling. David, thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to talk with me about your cycling experience there in Huntsville. And we're going we're gonna to get to some of the exciting things that you've done and some of the creative projects that you've done. But to get us rolling, please take a moment just to share a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I probably don't sound like I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, which is a first giveaway. I'm actually born in South Wales, and, and then lived in Windsor, England, and I met a girl from Huntsville, Alabama, um, at the place I was working. So she bought me back as a souvenir, is one of the jokes. <laughs> and so I ended up in Huntsville in the late 90s. It's a very interesting place that doesn't meet the stereotypes of what all my friends in England said, why are you going to Alabama? So um, that's the very brief um, bit of background. Fantastic. Now, Huntsville, uh, pretty much right on the border with Tennessee, correct? Um, yeah, about 30 miles south of the border. Okay. What's the area like? It's bizarrely not like Alabama in the it's at the very, very southern end of the Appalachian. So it is, well, they call them mountains here. They're not Denver mountains. They are a couple of thousand feet tall, but it is undulating hills. There's a lot of greenery, a lot of trees. It's a very interesting mix of a city that boomed so late in life that it doesn't feel like other towns around here. So people compare it to Chattanooga a lot of the times being a similar size, but downtown Huntsville is 
a fraction of the size of similar population cities in this part of the world. So the space program and NASA caused it to boom 60s and 70s and then it's broad. So the, the easiest way to describe Huntsville is somewhere that feels like it's in the south but not and is sprawling and has got a very weird mix of defense industry and arts and crafts. Okay. Getting back to sort of your background, is there a particular area of expertise that uh, that you have training in and quote unquote your day job? Uh, yes, I actually, in, in England, we finished high school at 16 and I left at that time. Even though I was supposed to go to college, I actually applied for my one and only job, which was a cartographer. So I was trained by the British government as a cartographic draftsman formally for a year and they sent me to college as well. So I was trained to draw maps for essentially the uh, the Royal Engineers and the British military. And so mapping has been a passion of mine. I've been drawing maps since I was five. I've been basically making up places um, as my artwork. So my artwork is hand-drawn fictional maps. And that's been a theme throughout my life. And then I've worked with mapping. And when I moved to the US, I started working for a company called Intergraph at the time, doing public safety maps. So. I spent a lot of time traveling to customers all over the country to help them update their 911 maps, their 911 system, so that responders can actually find things more easily and, and put details on maps that Google doesn't have, like fire hydrants and flow rates for the fire department. And one of the things that that really did for me was cause me to travel all over the US. So I got to see places like Des Moines. Who would pick Des Moines as a vacation spot or Newark, New Jersey or any number of very small out-of-the-way places or large cities. And, and that really gave me a good sense for a lot more of the US than just where I was living. So that's kind of a, a little bit of background. I now do that as a consulting business. So I'm an artist full-time and then do some 911 mapping as, as consulting. Okay. And uh, when, when you say that, uh, you know, you're an artist full-time and you just mentioned that, you know, maps were part of that, I'm, am I bringing these two things together or, or have you diverged on your artistic pursuits? You No, they are. They very much um, overlap. Um, the map over my shoulder is a hand-drawn map um, that, that I did um, and that they influence each other a lot. So obviously with 911 mapping, it's all software and GIS and database and I didn't really want to keep doing that as my art. So my art stayed hand-drawn and there's a nice divide yet overlap between the two. So I, I know I've been told by customers that my love of maps and making maps legible and readable and fun translates well to them using them to act quickly in a dispatch situation because I'm that passionate about maps that I would hate to have something be ambiguous or not clear or slow them down. So it's, it's an interesting overlap of my my art and, and my profession. Yeah. There's a whole subgenre of art uh, with maps. I mean, obviously there's historical maps and people, you know, collecting them. Um, so, so that, I mean, that's a real thing. <laughs> Absolutely it is. And it's, it's a weird thing that has gone in, in, in cycles. Um, maps have become very cool in the last five, six years. Whereas before they were somewhat utilitarian and yet, very familiar. Everyone kind of recognizes and understands a map, which is an unusual thing because for everyone to understand something almost intuitively is bizarre. Um, we're all spatial creatures at our hearts. So seeing that representation on a map is something that a lot of people love when they were a kid and then, quote, grow out of. And then some of us didn't. Um, but maps and very much so now data visualization. So people playing with whether it's pedestrian routes and getting, you know, goat trails and trying to figure out actual data to portray on a map or whether I've seen some really cool ones on Instagram, plotting buses traveling around English cities, but in three dimensions. And it's just these little balls that move around and they are so much more advanced and interesting than the flat maps of 20, 30 years ago. Right, right. And that's an interesting sort of transformation that we've had just in our lifetime of going from, you know, having an entire set of maps. I can remember having, you know, like on a, on a cross-country road trip, I'd have, you know, multiple, multiple maps. Maybe I had one map that was the entire United States, but then I would have maybe a couple of maps that were 
you know, regional areas. And then, of course, when you get to the city level, you have, you know, this map. It was an entire skill that we had of reading paper maps, you know. And but now everything's kind of changed. You mentioned software. It's a different application. Yes. um, The paper maps also were a skill in how to fold them um, because I I grew up with ordnance survey maps, which would be bigger. They'd be about four foot by four foot, completely unfolded. And it was actually funny. My brother spoke to me last weekend and said, can we get rid of your maps that I left 20 something years ago? Because I had 150 ordnance survey maps covering the United Kingdom. I said, well, they're 20, 30 years old. So maybe try sell them on eBay because someone actually might want them. So that skill of reading a paper map while driving was definitely something that was challenging to some and easy for some of us. And then convert that to a, a Google map or a software, which is both brilliant and awful at the same time. It's homogenized everything. So Beijing looks the same as Manchester, England, in terms of how the map is, is drawn. Um, and I think there's the modern data visualization, hand-drawn maps, and more playful maps is kind of a reaction to that and pushing it back to the artisan. Because the definition of cartography is the art and science of representing the 3D as 2D. So I'm lucky in what I do in that people are actually beginning to value again the, the level of thought and data and detail that goes into drawing a map, not just here's a piece of graphics on a computer. Yeah. And you sort of alluded to it earlier, too, is that sometimes a map and especially now that we we have Google Maps and we're, we're given you know, sort of turn by turn, you know, directions and in, in all of that. But it's there there's we've lost something in in this and and in uh, in the where I'm where I'm heading on this is you, you just mentioned thought in detail and. I'm also thinking of it from right, like a qualitative uh, standpoint of, you know, we're, we're given a route, you know, to, to, to go, to consider, and it's almost always dictated or selected based on time. The easiest route from, you know, the shortest route from here to here based on time. And maybe they'll give you, Google Maps will give you or whatever, you know, application you're using will give you an alternate route. Like, say, if there's construction ahead or there's an accident ahead or a crash ahead, etc. And and so you may have an option of, you know, uh, one or two other routes and it seems like we've lost something there too, because it's like you, one of the things that I envision, you know, when I think about the built environment from an active town's perspective and lens is through what I call activity assets. And I think of activity asset mapping of going, well, where are, you know, these special places, you know, the, the parks and the pools and the pathways and the trails and all of these types of things, you know, these activity assets. And then, our streets themselves can be activity assets if they're safe and inviting in all ages and abilities facilities. Sure. But the route that I may want to choose may not be the fastest route. Maybe I want the most beautiful route. <laughs> That's definitely not one of the options on Google yet. Not yet. <laughs> I distinctly remember when, when Google Navigation first came out. Um, it's very interesting to me because within the 911 world, we have to have a street network that is navigatable so that you can select the closest fire engine. And what does closest mean? What does the closest police car mean? And it is generally time, but time plus, can that fire engine make that turn? So there's a lot more complex to it. So when Google came out with maps, like, oh, I can go from A to B. And it just annoyed me no end that I couldn't pick waypoints and I couldn't choose those things, those landmarks that I wanted to see. And I think I wrote to Google and it was about five years before they did exactly what I'd asked them to do. I said, can you do this and this? Um, so now, even to this day, I will use Google Maps for navigation, but I never follow the route it suggests. I always pick five or six points along the way that these are the things I want to see. You can get me between them, but I'm going to go see. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. We're missing the small downtowns. We're missing that interesting cemetery or the park or something that is an asset and that's an excellent word for it that google's just going to go past because it's a slower road yeah and one of the things that you know i i feel like is being squandered in this opportunity is that 
uh, with sort of the the learning, the AI learning capacity of, you know, David could put into his profile that, you know, these are the types of things that that he wants to experience. You know, he, he, he's really into the changing leaves in 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 the autumn and fall. And and it's like, you know, it's like in his profile embedded in his profile. Mm-hmm. So if you, you, you say I'm going I'm in a completely different environment, completely different city. But the program knows, you know, based on what your stated preferences are, that, you know, you're going to be writing in that. Maybe you're going to be writing with, um, you know, I don't know if you have children or not, but maybe you're riding with a young child on your bike and you want to see the leaves. And it's like, oh, we're able to leverage all of these data points and then bring that map alive. Yeah, I think particularly as the software does allow you to choose your mode of transport. So walking versus biking versus driving, the things that I want to see in each of those modes is drastically different. Uh, In my travels all around the US, I was thrilled when bike shares became a thing. So I could now be in downtown Memphis, pick up a bike outside the hotel and go explore. Or go downtown Louisville and go into the side of town that's slightly too far to walk. And also, to be honest, slightly intimidating feeling to walk in. And yet... Driving meant I'm just driving past derelict buildings and not seeing that one really cool little chicken place that has renovated a building and it's now a ruined courtyard and has great food. A bike gave you that in between. I felt safe because I can get away from something if I want to. and don't feel comfortable in this place. I can cycle away. And yet slow enough that I can stop and look at things. And to add those assets to the biking component to say, if I'm on a bike... My interests are abandoned railway lines, historic buildings, whatever your choice of lists would be, um, four colors, for example. Yeah, I think that would be a brilliant addition to, quote, navigation, because you're not navigating at that point, you're exploring. Right. And I think that having cycled all of Huntsville, the exploration part was one of the fascinating parts to it. It's like, I had no idea. And this is my city. I had no idea this view was from here. I can see for miles. And back to, is Huntsville flat? No, it's it's not. So absolutely, I think software sh- is probably smart enough to do that. We just haven't spent the time as engineers doing that for some reason. Yeah, I have to chuckle a little bit. You know, you've mentioned uh, bike share and uh, going into Memphis and being able to explore, which, of course, is the name of their bike share system, the Explore bike share system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I had to laugh a little bit there. So, okay, you've been in Huntsville now since uh, the 1990s, right? Yes. Okay, since the 1990s. And uh, you'd mentioned getting out and exploring all of the streets of uh, Huntsville. So... uh, Talk a little bit about this idea that then turned into this grand adventure. Describe that. And, and, and I guess you're going to have to address why. I think why is probably it's twofold. Um, I've always liked cycling and Huntsville actually has some really good cycling groups. Um, one of my favorites is called Bikes and Brews. And once a month on a Friday night, they cycle around local breweries and bars and very good camaraderie, met all sorts of interesting people and just sharing that, hey, bikes are not just for recreation, which is predominantly what bikes were in Huntsville as far as I could see. When I told people I cycled somewhere, they're like, oh, you're just going out for a ride. Like, no, I was going somewhere. Um, so that was an unusual thing to, to move here for. Um, so the why I have cycled every street in Huntsville started two years ago. Um, in 2019, in fact, April 2019, I went back to England. My brother was running a marathon, first ever marathon, and it was within four days of the 26th anniversary of our mum's death. So he was running 26 miles to raise money, 26th anniversary. It's kind of a closure event for him. So I said, I'm going to come over and support you. So I did a bike share and I cycled and caught up with him as many times and cheered him on. and. He was absolutely amazing. He ran it in four and a half hours, having never run a marathon before. It didn't stop once. And it was just so inspiring to look at how much training he'd done, how much effort and planning. And I thought, I used to do that. I used to do competitions, whether it was uh, football, soccer tournaments. 
and I didn't have that quest, that urge, and I felt that I was suddenly missing that and seeing him do it. So I said, I'm just going to set myself a goal, cycle every other day. I could do with losing a bit of weight. I'd had some injuries playing soccer, and I thought I needed to be fitter to avoid that. So that was the original, original genesis. And then I thought, because of the way my brain works, I have to set myself rules. I can't just cycle every other day. So in each route, I can't go on the same street twice, and I can't cycle the same route twice on different days. So that was just a way of keeping my, my mind engaged instead of just cycling loops. And because of my mapping background, of course, I mapped it. So I used Map My Ride app to, to track, and then I transferred them to a GIS map, and I kept an updated map. And so that was started in June 2019, and then in August, I did a Facebook post showing, look, there's this pretty map I've drawn of all the streets I've cycled, and then here's one without the streets I've cycled, and here's just pretty maps. And then I went, I'm my rules are meaning I'm cycling places I've never been before, and I'm exploring. And I also looked at my maps and realized I was exceptionally biased to cycling kind of South Huntsville, places I was more familiar with. And I realized that I was biased for no good reason. And my quest now meant I had to cycle every single street because my map was going to be annoying if it didn't get completely colored <laughs> in. So a mix of stupid brain activity plus inspiration caused me to have this quest and so I announced that on Facebook. And of course, once you do that, it's a thing. So um, I then had to cycle every single street. And that meant changing my philosophy slightly because cycling not the same route twice means my density map of where I cycled means I've cycled an awful lot around my house in the same streets 40, 50 times to get to a new place. And there are a lot of dead ends in Huntsville, so a lot of streets that you have to go to and capture every single dead end, which was a, it's a whole other story, but we can, we can get to that. Yeah. So getting back to the fact that you've been here for, for several decades now, how much has Huntsville changed since the 1990s, since you first arrived? Yeah, 1997. Um, the biggest change is, some of it is just obvious growth of um, certain types of structures and certain types of buildings, um, particularly density-wise. So when I first moved here, and uh, it was very apparent um, yesterday um, when I cycled, no, Sunday when I cycled, I came back through downtown. When I first moved here, on a Sunday afternoon in downtown, you would see no people. It would be completely devoid of pedestrians. Um, and there wasn't anything for them to do downtown. And I cycled through Sunday afternoon, and five or six restaurants had full outside seating, pedestrians walking around, people just out and about. I mean, it was a lovely day, but the vibrancy and the people outside of vehicles is, is a very obvious difference that I've seen. Part of that is there were three restaurants downtown when I moved here, and there's now 30. And there's apartments and condos downtown where they weren't. And downtown is five blocks that way just I'm close enough to walk there and so the level of construction the number of people moving here from elsewhere and Huntsville is very much a place of outsiders and people from other parts of the country and other parts of the world but definitely the pedestrian downtown is probably the the biggest visible change that I that I see amongst other big changes yeah, yeah. Now, what became quite apparent when I, I looked at the video of your your cycling map as it came came to life, you know, <laughs> ride after ride, and the way that you did it was you you numbered each ride, so you have each ride, and so the video of your ride, which will embed in the landing page for this episode as well as have a link in the show notes uh, so folks can can get a visual of this it was really cool because it was just it you know each ride was layered onto the next ride and it just sort of grew out but one of the things that was clearly obvious when i was looking at that is just how weird the city looks it's it's like this amoeba of of you know you know 
city boundaries or whatever. So that, that must have been quite a challenge too, just being able to, you know, <laughs> know what's actually technically in the city. Because I'm assuming that a part, a big part of the growth of Huntsville was probably through, uh, you know, land being, you know, <laughs> sort of brought in. Yes. Uh, you know, so, yeah. Very much an annexation city. It's a, a, a bizarre um, city in that it's, it's so big, um, geographically 220 square miles with 200,000 people. To compare that, Chicago is about 228 square miles with 2.7 million. So sprawl and a lot of land that is farmland. So cycling some of the places was, I'm in the middle of nowhere, countryside. And yet that's in the city limits. So I did use um, City of Huntsville GIS data to get the street lines and the city limits, which I I capped because they keep changing. I capped at the end of um, 2019. So January 1st, 2020 was my cutoff for annexation. And that's, yeah, the static point, if you will. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's 25 miles from my house to the edge of the city in different directions. Um, which is a, it's a massive geographic area and bizarre. So, um, and I do have to give credit to my friend Ned Drummond, who did the animation part of the map, uh, met them at a cartographic conference and told them what I was doing. And they said, someone should animate that. And little did they know that a year later, they had accidentally volunteered to animate all my, my route maps. Um, so that was a fun collaboration because... I also got to see my map and my riding through their eyes because they would ask questions. Why have you done that? Um, and the thing that was also weirdly obvious when people look at the animation is you can kind of see when the pandemic hit because I started this pre-pandemic and continued it during. And it's kind of obvious I had a bit more time some days because, and a bit more organization because I'm riding chunks of the city and filling them in um, and riding on the main roads. I mean, Huntsville has US highways through it, and I've ridden everything except the interstate. So I still would like to ride the interstate, but that's a bit more of a logistical challenge um, and safety-wise. So I'm not advocating for that, but I have ridden on the six-lane US highways. But it's so yeah, mapping-wise and keeping up with where actual city limits were when I'm 20 miles from home, and is this street in or not? That was... Um, had to get city GIS data involved for that. <laughs> so you you mentioned you wrote it all. I mean, the the good, the bad, the ugly, etc. What were some of the observations? What are some of the key learnings that uh, now that you're you're done, right? You you are I, done. Yes, I, I okay. Yeah, I finished it in August last year. Okay, so you're you're done. You've 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 accomplished your goal and. Uh, and I had to chuckle, too, when I saw some of the, the sections pop up. And it was like, yep, he rode down every single one of those little tiny little streets and that little tiny block. And then that, that block was done. But what were some of those observations that you had? Um, the first one, which a lot of people are surprised at, is how hilly Huntsville is. So some neighborhoods, they are just very steep, short, but very steep. Um, so I kept track of my elevation gain and I ended up total elevation gain 76,600 something feet, which is a ridiculous amount of height. And total distance was about 2,200 miles or my house to Los Angeles, so Alabama to the coast of LA. So they were kind of the obvious statistical um, observations. The, the one that was the funniest to me and that I recorded the most, because I didn't take that many pictures, um, and there's a reason for that, which was I didn't want people to look at me like I was some stranger with a camera coming through the neighborhood. I waved at people, so I wanted to feel much more friendly and open. Um, I wasn't wearing professional biking gear. I wasn't racing through the neighborhoods. So going in all these dead ends, waving at people, kids playing. It was a much more welcoming experience, which just wasn't planned that way. It just, okay, this works out. Um, the number of dead-end streets in Huntsville is the biggest observation. And I started texting pictures to a friend of the red diamonds. At the end of these dead-end streets are three red diamonds. And the reason that is, is not because they're dead-end and they're warning you that the road ends. They are specifically, that road should have gone somewhere but didn't. 
meaning it was a speculative subdivision that built and the road stopped and maybe they'll buy the land next door at some point and they didn't. And once I started looking at these, I realized that had to be a map as well because there are 512 distinct dead ends that were not planned to be dead ends. That is an awful lot of not very well planned, meaning not very well connected, meaning not very friendly for people to go from one neighborhood to another. So kids can't play with their friends in the adjacent neighborhood without getting out on main road because there are no connections. So the, the red diamonds was the biggest kind of glaring observation. Um, and that led into the disconnected part of Huntsville as well. Um, and to me, that informed what I would call the segregation of Huntsville. Being in the South, racial segregation is obviously still a thing. Um, obviously, it may not be the right word, but sadly, obviously still a thing. I found one neighborhood that stood out because it was about a third Hispanic, a third white, and a third black. And it was kind of sad that that stood out. That should be the norm, but that stood out. And it's also segregated economically. There's very different income levels in different parts of the city. And it's segregated by the way the roads are built and the road layout, whether they have curbs and gutters and they're narrow and curvy or whether they're gridded. There's only downtown, the Five Points area and the mill villages that are grids, meaning more than one way to get anywhere, more interconnected. Everything else is more modern subdivisions. And the... The geography of Huntsville is segregated. If there's a stream or a creek, there's no bridge across it. So you're now keeping places apart for cost reasons. Um, and some of it feels deliberate. Like we don't want this neighborhood connected to that neighborhood because we're new, they're old, whatever the reason. And a lot of it is kind of organic, distinct lack of planning. Um, outside of the individual development. So I call it insular planning. The city didn't say we need to build all these things and connect them. The city approved someone asking to be building a subdivision. And Huntsville grew so quickly that I understand why they're reactive and that's not a dig at anyone in city planning because I actually like people in city planning now. But 20, 30 years ago, it was just keep building, keep building, keep building, increase the tax base, build, build, build. Oh, should we have connected those things? is kind of how I look at it. So the segregation, the dead ends, the unplanned, and the hills are the, the biggest takeaways of observations. It's fascinating, those those dead ends, especially the part that where you had mentioned that, you know, it, it, it looks like there, there could have been a future connection to that, and it just hasn't materialized. Are you seeing... Uh, is it sort of obvious? Like, I mean, are people like you, you mentioned the kids, I could totally see, you know, teenagers, you know, just cutting their uh, pathway through, you know, especially if it's if it's land that's just kind of sitting unproductive. And it's yeah, it's a mix of land. Some of it is kind of more the speculative part, particularly as well on the more mountainous areas where they've cut a road stub and hopefully they can build that. But they didn't sell enough lots, so they didn't build it. Some of it butts up to farmland because Huntsville was very much cotton fields and agriculture until fairly recently, and that field just wasn't purchased. And some of it, yes, absolutely, there's, there's tracks through. Um, and I took several pictures, and there's just me pointing, okay, the adjacent road that it didn't connect to is less than 100 yards away. So was that a holdout landowner? Was it just a weirdness? But to be over 500 of these is more than just an anomaly. This is something that is kind of a glaring issue of the ability for people to move around because it also limits the number of ways in and out of a subdivision by vehicle. So traffic congestion is impacted. And then the main roads are very hard to cross because there's less places to cross them and less overpasses. We have some parts of town where there's only four ways to go east-west. So they're not bike and pedestrian friendly, any of them. And that road building, again, you have to bear in mind when Huntsville boomed, very much car-centric, very much move people around wide roads. Some of that has turned out good because we have an overcapacity in, in some areas. So the roads can be narrowed and bike lanes added without you know, massive infrastructure costs. But for the most part, Huntsville is a car-based city. And I would say no thought 
to pedestrians or bikes at some point until about maybe 15 years ago, and then they went up. Um, one of the good things I did see, while I'm saying less good things about planning, is in riding all the neighborhoods, constant construction of sidewalks. So neighborhoods that didn't have sidewalks, if it was anywhere near a school, the city is retroactively fitting sidewalks and building them along streets that there was never a sidewalk. So there's definitely some good um, good progress, and they're also making them uh, much more handicapped accessible at, at intersections, so changing the angle, angle of the ramp so it's a much longer ramp down to the street level instead of just a, a sudden drop off in the curb. So there's definitely improvements. Um, unfortunately, it's still piecemeal. There's not a master, hey, this is all connected. See. Yeah, it, it, it really does make you think about, especially when you do see some of those desire lines that cut through some of those areas and, and, and reflect on the fact that you know, that could be a, a future activity asset. You know, that could be a, a very quick and easy way to create connectivity from a walking and biking perspective and helping, especially if it, it helps connect meaningful destinations and giving bikes and peds a different, you know, a different way of going versus, like you said, going back out to that main arterial road. You know, this this could be a, you know, a solution. And many cities are, are doing this uh, around the country. They're taking an inventory of those dead ends that they have and saying, oh, well, in actuality, <laughs> you know, that sort of right of way is preserved. All we need to do is, you know, lighter, quicker, cheaper. Let's let's, you know, cut a pathway through here and and make this happen. And and, and I had an opportunity to film an example of that in uh, the far eastern suburb of, of the Gateway District in Portland, Oregon, where that's one of the ways that they are bringing their neighborhood greenways to life is they're able to create those permeability pathways, you know, for people on bikes and, 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 and who are walking versus, you know, with, with a car, the, the car does need to shunt and, and go over to the quote unquote main drag. But for those walking and biking, you, you get the, the, the desire line route. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I've spoken to some in city planning and they like, they call them the goat trails where you look at a satellite image and you can absolutely see people have walked across here for generations. Why not make that a designated path? It's obviously not being used for anything else. An example, I, I cycle from my house down to the Tennessee River a few times. We have a lovely little marina ditto landing on the river. And there's a good greenway. Um, Huntsville does have some good greenways and Aldridge Creek, but I'm not going to cycle down the greenway and back up the greenway. I want to do a loop. So I tried to stay to the west of the main road. And you can do that for about 90% of the way. And then the 10% you can't, you have to go on the service road of a overpass highway. And yet there's plenty of room through a park to make a connection. So some of it is absolutely, you know, if they built a quarter mile sidewalk, you've made um, a connection that now allows a 30 mile round trip um, instead of feeling unsafe. Um, and that's... The safety part of that is is an interesting thing because I'm very comfortable on my bike. I'm very confident cycling. I'm a very considerate cyclist in that I'm not going to hold up traffic. If I see traffic's backing up, I'm pulling off and letting them go by. But at the same time, I'm taking up a lane so I'm not pushed off the road. And so I'm very comfortable at an intersection. I'll pull out the front and I'll get out of the way before anyone is bothered. And I realize I'm a bit of an anomaly. Most of my friends are, well, I'm not cycling on across governors or I'm not cycling on the service road or I'm not doing that. I'm not going in that neighborhood. That neighborhood doesn't feel safe. So to me, an advocacy part of the cycling I've done is kind of explaining what is safe and what does that word mean and what is a good neighborhood versus a bad neighborhood. And one of the other observations was what people considered the bad, poor neighborhoods were much friendlier and they, and they felt safe to cycle through. People waved at you. And kids playing basketball on the street stopped and bizarrely called me sir as I went through, which was an odd thing, but very polite, respectful. And, and then the richer neighborhoods, no one's out on the street playing. No one waves at you. I'm slightly exaggerating both ends of that, but it's the perception of what is good and bad, what is safe and unsafe. And you can't cycle on a six lane highway. So of course I can. 
I've got a whole lane and there's still two lanes for cars to overtake. I'm not holding up traffic. A two lane narrow winding road is much less safe. So um, I know that's a ramble answer to, to what we're talking about, but the perceptions um, and those little connections would help with that safety because people feel that they can get, oh, I can get between A and B and not have to do a dangerous three block section. Yeah. Well, and you, you just mentioned perceptions and you mentioned earlier that you, you you weren't, you know, sort of adorned in, you know, special riding gear. Was Does that mean you were just dressed in normal everyday clothes for the most part when you were out there? I actually wore a volleyball shirt, which was a kind of um, bright fluorescent yellowy green, but I, I didn't have the branded cycle gear on. And um, the confession part of all of this, which probably is a really bad thing is I didn't wear a bike helmet. I didn't have one when I started because my old one had disintegrated. So I threw it out and I, I said, I'd get a new one. And then I started riding. And at some point I got to the realization that unnecessary brain pattern, I've come this far. I want to finish it without. Um, and part of that was for me and the comfort level. It also added to that being approachable in neighborhoods and I'm not racing. I'm doing Average 11, 12 miles an hour. I'm on a 27-year-old mountain bike that's heavy. This whole thing was done without thinking about it, so I didn't do it on a sensible bike either. My old rally, handmade in Nottingham, England bike, I brought with me from England. So that's what I did it on. But having no helmet and having a smile on my face and going slow, it really did help with that comfort level of approaching people. Didn't help with the dogs chasing me, but... Even even them in some neighborhoods, one guy kind of just shouted. He said, the dog's never seen a bike before. No cyclist has ever come down my cul-de-sac. So he said, can you bring her back? And it was a pit bull that was just overexcited. So I just turned around and said, come back. And she just tried back with me. She just said, literally, no one had ever cycled down that street before. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Th- I love it, though, that you 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 did this whole thing. Um, I love that you didn't have a helmet on. You're absolutely right. You're much more approachable when you're not adorned in, you know, all of this other paraphernalia. And and I'm not anti helmet. I do wear my helmet when I'm on my racing bike. But my daily riding, you know, I, I never wear a helmet. I mean, I tra- when I travel to Europe to, to, you know, ride for a month on end, I, I don't even pack a helmet. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there, I do believe that there's there's a, a time and place uh, for and a type of riding uh, for wearing, uh, you know, that level of protection. In fact, whenever I'm out on my my true mountain bike on single track, I, I'm guaranteed to crash. So I, I always have my helmet on yes. there. But I, I love that fact that you did that and you you made that observation of the fact that, you know, in certain neighborhoods where people are present out on the streets, where they're out playing and they're out, uh, you know, inter, intermixing and intermingling. In other words, there is street life. You know, there's people out there that you have that ability to make those connections. So how special to be able to discover that. Absolutely. In a, in a community that you had lived in for all these years. And um, kids of different skin colors to me challenged me to races on, on several times. Like, can I race you to the end of the street? <laughs> you can, but I, <laughs> it's probably not going to go well for you. I mean, I've got much bigger legs than you for a start. So just... <laughs> Or, or then again, you're like, you're, like, you're probably going to win, kid. <laughs> I'm on an old heavy mountain bike. <laughs> I am probably unrealistically confident of my abilities in terms of speed. I, 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 Sunday, I got chased by a couple of packs of dogs, and I realized I had to get to about 25 miles an hour to outrun them. And I'm impressed with the dogs at that point. It's like, how, how are you going this fast and for this long? Um, so I'm pretty sure I could outrun unless I'm on a hill. Um, but yeah, the kids, the kids particularly, um, and the younger kids, the funnest times were when the kids were on their little tiny play bikes or bikes with stabilizers, and they just stop and almost gawk at you. Like, an adult's on a bike? They're just, it's not expected. Um, so they wave and they smile. Um, and yeah, again, often different skin colors to me and just... It's like I made their day by going down their street because that didn't happen. And they made my day by smiling and waving. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So you you sort of alluded to this earlier, is that uh, you know you, you started doing this and you you had mentioned yeah you know I could I could stand to lose a, a little bit of weight. How how did your health transform over that one year period? Because it was it was pretty much like from mid 19, uh, 2019 to mid you know to uh, to August of twenty twenty. It was about yeah fourteen month start to finish. Um, I the thirty five pounds was the greatest loss, um, so total went down, which means. Uh, wardrobe was a problem because I now needed a lot smaller trousers. Um, health definitely uh, improved. Um, the obvious noticing was the first months of the ride. I would be impressed that I'd gone five, six miles and like felt good. Um, and then nine months later, I was calling a 20-mile ride a short ride. I'm just popping out for two hours as opposed to um, and then to cycle at the end of 2019, I turned 50 in 2019. So I ended 2019 by cycling a 50 mile ride and felt great. So to cycle some weeks, 200 miles in a week and not feel exhausted and not feel worn out definitely meant my health has improved. I actually found I was eating less because my metabolism was just working better um, and generally felt better, slept better. So the weight has fluctuated a little bit since because, to be honest, at the end of my quest, I get on my bike and get to the end of the driveway and I have no idea where to go. Whereas during the quest, I had an area of town that at least I'm going to go to this area. I didn't pre-plan any ride, by the way. None of this was mapped out in advance. I had a color-coded map with no street names on it. It was just gray and red. Red had cycled, grey I hadn't. So that was another challenge. I navigated by purely knowing where I was and what the street's colours were on my map, not actual uh, pre-planning. So now if I want to cycle somewhere new, how do I do that? It's 25 miles in any direction to cycle a street I've not cycled. Um, so Sunday I put my bike in the back of my truck and, and drove 20 minutes to cycle a loop in the countryside. Um, but yeah, that's a noticeable brain change that once the quest finished I wasn't as keen to cycle every other day because what do I do so I did put five pounds back on um, and I realized consistency is a thing just be be consistent I don't have to cycle miles and miles but just be be regular um, and go out and I've got people who want me to lead tours of some of these discoveries I found um, whether it's an old Doppler radar installation on top of a mountain that feels like it's in California, the street is one lane, treed pine trees, um, or whether it's tour of the cemeteries. There are dozens of old family cemeteries I've discovered that too far to walk to. You're not going to stop in a car and go explore, but on a bike, you can go through a cemetery and find graves from before when Alabama was a state. And just the history that's here as well is, is fascinating to discover at a different pace. So I have a few different things to keep me going but yeah generally much better health fantastic uh how about how about your mood and and did you notice any any changes you know from from mentally from a a perspective you know whether it either be you know enhanced sort of that that sort of enhancement or or even from you know like from professionally from attention and and focus and things of that nature the uh, the things that came to mind when you said that weren't necessarily focus-based, um, other than I would have not called myself quite as obsessive as I was before doing this. And I've realized, oh, I, I was obsessed. I had to do this. And what that did for my mood was it caused me to think of time and value differently. So during the pandemic, everyone has more time in theory. We can spend time doing things we wouldn't have done before. But what's valuable time? And I don't know why, but almost instantly going to cycle for three or four hours was valid and I didn't question it. Whereas before spending that much time doing something by myself, for myself, I would have definitely questioned and felt, shouldn't I be doing something else more productive that was maybe bringing in some income? Shouldn't I have been working on something? So from a mood point of view, it meant that I also then was probably more productive when I wasn't cycling. 
So it definitely allowed me to focus more. Hey, I've spent four hours for me. Now I need to do more for someone else or more for work or go and get customers, which as an artist and a consultant, um, much harder to go find work during a pandemic. So the time I did have a bit more time, but definitely felt better about myself and changed how I value time is probably the one of the biggest outcomes and hadn't even considered that until you asked that question. Yeah. I have always found personally that, you know, if I'm out on a long run or a, a long bike ride, um, I'll have, you know, creative ideas just pop into my head. And, and it's just like, you know, it's you're, you're taking in what's around you. Mm-hmm. Yes. But at the same time, you're out there, you get in a rhythm and some of the other things that are in your head and the voices sort of settle away and then, you, you know, things pop up. Did you experience any of that? Absolutely. I, I'm not particularly good at taking time to myself in the grand scheme of things and I'm not particularly good at relaxing. My relaxing is activity. Um, but cycling, because of the pace I was going and because a lot of Huntsville is relatively flat, there's times where you're just cruising and you don't have to pay that much attention. So yes, I would come up with ideas or thoughts Uh, And one of the biggest things for that overlap back to my artwork, which as I draw fictional maps, I draw what I call hand-drawn, plausible, fictitious maps. The plausible means they have to be set somewhere. They have to look like they belong somewhere. They can't just be fantasy maps that don't have any reality. And in cycling places, I'm very much seeing features. Like, how would I map that from above? How would I design this differently? Would I... Would I draw a neighborhood like this? Or I'm then starting to question, are my maps realistic compared to reality? And what I found is my maps are sometimes too realistic because reality is pretty silly. Like, those roads don't make any sense. Who would who would build Lake Pontchartrain Causeway Bridge? That doesn't make any sense in a fictional map world, as an example. Um, and I noticed that very much. Uh, I was in Philadelphia recently and I did a city bike and cycled around. Well, I'm now drawing a hand-drawn map inspired by that journey because I, I realized a lot of my maps that I draw focused on a city center or a large country or an area where I'm drawing multiple towns. What I hadn't ever focused on was the edge of a city or pre-suburbs. So between the city center and the suburbs, there's very old, often very dense row houses in the Northeast. And it's a real mix of old industry and housing and schools and parks and cemeteries that I haven't paid enough attention to. So biking, particularly in other places, definitely has influenced my artwork because I'm now, this is this is a curious thing that I can focus on and research and dig into. So yeah, very much ideas, thoughts. And bizarre thing that just came to me is I often remember the dreams I had the night before while cycling. So I don't know if my mind has quietened enough to let that come back in, but I'll I'll then go off on a little spiral of of thinking about whatever um, dream I was having. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, life at 12 to 15 miles per hour is, you know, is it's fast enough that you're, you're, you're able to take a lot in, but also slow enough that you're able to really appreciate what, what's going on around you. Not so fast, too, where you, you feel like, you know, you have to white knuckle the situation. And so it gives that opportunity for uh, you're approachable for, to other people and you're approachable to open up the mind to, to other thoughts that might be, you know, sort of creeping in. Now, on a daily basis, I mean, do you use your bike utilitarianly, you know, for, for to be able to get, uh, you know, about the the city, or do you need to, or are you are you able to walk to most of your destinations? It's an interesting mix because of the way Huntsville's laid out. Um, I share a studio at Low Mill Arts and Entertainment, which is an old cotton mill that's been converted into art studios. I share that with my wife. Um, it depends on what I'm doing. So if I have to take my laptop with me, my backpack is a good size now, so I will cycle to, to that building. It's only like a six-mile round trip. But sadly, the way Huntsville is, is you do need to get in a car if you're going to do anything of much. So if you're going to go grocery shopping, probably not going to carry that in my backpack because it's just... I don't know, I've become... I'm saying this out loud, I've become horribly Americanized during my time here. 
um, because things are further apart. And I do, I can walk to the bars and the restaurants downtown, and I'm probably going to walk instead of cycle to those. Right. Yeah. Because they're but, that close. Yeah. Th- yes. It's, it's, Huntsville's got that annoyance for where I live. Of, it's close enough to walk, and pretty much everything else is now a drive. Or we haven't figured out exterior air conditioning yet in the summer. So when it's 95 degrees and 90% humidity, cycling utilitarianly without knowing that there is a shower or facilities at the other end lessens the appeal, which is, which is a shame because people haven't built that many like lead certified businesses around here, which actually incorporate showers or encourage people to, you know, get here and then clean up instead of um, just drive in in an air conditioned car, going to an air conditioned building. So, it's starting to change. Huntsville is definitely building more things that are more friendly for people to get there in a different way than by vehicle. Um, but it, that's that's part of that change of Huntsville back for earlier question. There are more things that are more close. There is more density. So walking there or biking there is more viable than it's, than it's ever been in Huntsville. Yeah. Well, and I think you are a prime example of somebody who could benefit from, you know, a, a Dutch styled upright bike <laughs> when you're ready to make that upgrade from the old uh, mountain bike, just because, you know, one of the ways that I'm able to survive, you know, here in, in Austin, Texas during the heat of the summer, also high heat, high humidity is I just don't. I don't ride that hard, you know, <laughs> it's for me, it's just pedestrian plus. I mean, I'm, I'm on my upright bike, I'm relaxed, I'm, you know, waving to folks and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm exerting myself just enough that I'm getting the wind and the, et cetera. And I get to my destination, which is probably the grocery store or a restaurant or something like that, you know, close by. And, uh, and yeah, I may be a little, little hot and, and, but I'm not drenched because I didn't ride, I didn't push hard. So yeah, I, I can totally relate there. Yeah, you, you do have you do have the similar and to be fair, my old mountain bike is I mean, I'm six foot two and it's got I've got bar ends on it, so I'm I can be relatively relatively upright um, when when I want to be. So I'm yeah, and it's definitely that's something that again people haven't thought about as much and um, certainly it doesn't seem that way biking was either recreation or commute it, it there was nothing in between like the social activities on a bike the the bikes and grooves that i mentioned and i know i've seen on some of your podcasts the the community rides they are something that are invaluable for the for the sense of safety in numbers um, a car's not going to hit you when there's 70 strong bikes it's just they've stopped behind you and they end up smiling and being respectful so it's it's fun, but yeah, the kind of the casual ride, being okay with ten miles an hour, I think is something that is something that should be applauded. That oh, you're going ten miles an hour, great. You don't have to rush somewhere. That's perfectly acceptable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So talking about bikes, uh, you I believe are involved with uh, the hub, the hubs uh, co-op. Is that correct? Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, local charity. Um, or non-profit that it's evolved it's it actually started out as a way to uh, it's actually kind of partnered with one of the breweries and um, so the bikes and brews kind of fed into that and then the brewery ended up being given um, like ex-police bikes so they had these bikes and they loaned them out to bikes and brews and then we were discussing wouldn't there be a, a, a way to kind of put these bikes in places people could actually use them more frequently and be a bike share without being you know a big corporate bike share so that was kind of the genesis and we tried to to go down that and we decided loaning the bikes and it worked well but realized once a professional bike share came to town that's not the competition you want to try and play with it's it's different so um, it it has evolved uh, a new leadership with larry that's turning it much more into a cooperative membership based with the goal of kind of having a repair facility and teaching young people particularly the safety about bikes how to maintain the bike and one of the goals i really love is kind of them them being able to earn the bike if you if you work x number of hours you you help other people this bike is now yours and hopefully they can bike to the facility from where they are so we're trying to find a good location to actually have that that's in a in a neighborhood that would benefit from that so not just put it in the trendy place put it somewhere where 
there are kids about on bikes or they would be if there was that safety and, uh, and facility so it's a i would say it's in a it's gone through a transition i'm still not, i'm on the board um, so helping it achieve a goal that i think is a, is a really good one having looked at other bike programs and facilities around the country it's it's an interesting challenge though to get people wanting to repair things the the mentality has gone away from that it's just like replace it or take it to someone and some of that is a fear factor people don't realize that they can change the chain or they can tweak something on their bike or they can I don't know, when I was a kid, we would go buy handlebars. Just just handlebars, and we'd take the old ones off, put the new ones on, have cow-worn handlebars, do that for a few months, and then get bored and go buy another pair of handlebars. And that was the only thing you swapped out at that time. But there was no intimidation to it. Whereas now, I think there is an intimidation to doing that yourself. And this, the hubs hopefully can, can eat into that and get people comfortable with working on things and appreciating the value of the effort you've put into it, and that there is some reward for that. Well, yeah, the community bike programs uh, such as that are, are just so invaluable because it it does help uh, teach some of those skills of, you know, build a bike program and then being able to learn how to even repair your own bike. If you do have a bike and you just don't even know how to, to, to do uh, the necessary repairs. And it seems like you guys are the de facto advocacy organization too. Is that- it's there are a couple. Um, there is an, a, a bike coalition um, that has been around uh, longer. Um, there's Alabama Bike as well, which has some, some local people. So there is there is an interesting mix of uh, advocacy groups in Huntsville that I would say until fairly recently were their own things. Um, the bike shops have actually been all really good. Um, they're not. Like fighting with each other, like I'm this advocacy or that. They'll they'll, they'll play nice together, which is which is really nice to see. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a there's a few advocacy groups. I, I would say, from my opinion only, not connected with anyone else for this opinion, that the advocacy isn't as strong as it could be. But I think some of that is just the coordination of what is it we actually want. Do we want more greenways? Do we want connected bike routes? Um, an observation I made last week. Which I can't believe I didn't think of this before. Huntsville has a lot of signposted bike routes. You're on bike route 59. Well, the sign just tells you you're on 59. It doesn't tell you where you're going. There's no wayfaring. There's nothing else. But the thing that I decided has really annoyed me is I'm in the neighborhood, quiet streets, on a bike route, and I, have, I hit five stop signs in the neighborhood. And if the city just changed the orientation of the stop signs to the other streets, I've now saved time and energy and effort and safety because I've not stopped all those times and I'm that's going to be my next goal of advocacy is trying to persuade the city let's go look at all numbered bike routes you've designated it this and look at stop signs can we take a four-way stop to a two can we switch the orientation of two-way stops so that the bike's basically priority and then people I would think would feel safer and less effort and more continuity to a route so that overlaps with advocacy but I think that's a I'm just going to go push for that with my city council person who who has asked me to speak to the city council, but pandemic-wise, it's been a bit weird to organize that. Right, right, yeah. And uh, it, I, I chuckle when I when I hear you you talk about you know <laughs> the the stop signs there and and all of that, and of course several uh, states are are moving through and and treating stop signs as 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 yields. Uh, you know, if you're on a bike and, and uh, so we're starting to see more acceptance to the fact that, you know, bikes are not are, are not motor vehicles. They're not cars. <laughs> and, and it's, it, you know, the, the physics of operating a bike is and, and riding a bike is much, much different. So be- and I think it's, yeah, it's much more dangerous to come to a complete stop and start again at an intersection than it is to slow down to go through it. Yeah, and, and be able and, to make yeah. a quick safety check to see that you know, yeah. it's clear. Yep. Yeah, I I won't say I disobey traffic laws um, because I'm a very big advocate for obeying them, but if I've got clear lines of sight and nothing's coming, I'm slowing through that intersection. I'm not stopping. Um, and the other picky thing is traffic lights that don't sense a bike on, on a bike route, yes, <laughs> no less. On a bike so I'm sitting there. So I've got to get off my bike, go push the crosswalk button if there is one, and if there isn't, at some point, I have to wait for another car to come to trip, trip it 
And of course, the car's polite and waits two car lengths behind me, and I have to tell them to pull forward to trip the light, otherwise neither of us are going. And it's like, these, these little things shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> these little things shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> I hear you. That's great. Low-hanging fruit is definitely a thing that can be, be done in some places for improving bike, bike ability. And also it's pedestrians as well. It's just make those crossings feel better. Well, the other thing that is one of my favorite uh, applications, especially in in residential areas, is the removal of uh, these stop signs when a small footprint traffic calming uh, traffic circle would make way more sense. You know, don't don't do anything, you know, fancy, just just plop a tiny little uh, traffic circle in the middle. It's designed for 15 miles per hour or less. And, you know, it's like, you know, because you know darn well that the majority of the motor vehicle drivers that are driving through there, they're not paying that much attention to the stop sign anyways. And so... No, definitely in neighbourhoods. I'm I'm a bit a big advocate of alternate street plans, whether it's complete streets, whether it's pedestrian focused roundabouts. Obviously, I'm British, so I love them. Um, parts of Britain have gone too far with the mini roundabouts, and you end up with you know a six inch roundabout next to a roundabout. And but I actually think the concept of four way yield versus four way stop would also work, and just put signs up bike route yield to bikes and you've you've got a lot of changes that don't cost the money of changing the curbs and don't cost the money of you know a traffic study and engineering diagrams and you've, you spend hundreds of thousands before you've actually done anything yeah good stuff well david it has been such a pleasure chatting with you here today and and meeting you <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the active towns podcast John, you are very welcome. This, this was a pleasure. I've enjoyed listening to, to several of your episodes and find them fascinating. So thank you. Thank you also very much for tuning in to episode number 73 of the Active Towns podcast. What an interesting journey that was. And in the end, much joy was spread, many lessons learned, and yes, Larry, it was indeed a fascinating story. So thank you, my friend, for the suggestion and connecting me with David. Please be sure to head over to the landing page for this episode as David sent over a bunch of photos from his rides and of his beautiful maps. Maybe you've been inspired by this conversation to explore a little bit more of your own community perhaps even every street, path, and trail. If you do, or if you have a suggestion for a future episode, please don't hesitate to drop me a line. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And as a final fundraising plug, I hope you'll please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Each and every donation is truly appreciated and makes a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue to produce this content and grow the culture of activity movement. Thank you so very much. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>